DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, a theological contemplation of prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of Conversations with Dr. Lillis, we focus on Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, and her great spiritual masterwork, The Interior Castle. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you. It is great to be with you going through the mansions of the Interior Castle. Thank you so much for uh, providing your guidance through these incredible corridors. Well, this topic of prayer and how it progresses first by our own efforts to avoid sin and to be devoted to God, but then by the beautiful things that God does in the soul. This is some of the most beautiful ideas when we come to Teresa of Avila, some of the most beautiful writing in all of spiritual literature. So it's a pure joy to share this with you. In this particular chapter, chapter two of the fourth mansion, we're going to touch on some very important points. But just to review a little bit, it's so typical of Teresa and her writings to see that she doesn't like start a book and go from the beginning to end. She kind of starts her writing, and then she stops, and then she picks it back up. We hear her talking. Now, did I write this before? I can't remember now. It's just so earthy, isn't it? Yes, and the reason why it has that quality is she is a very busy foundress. The Carmelite reform has exploded through Spain, and there's all these new communities, and so she is writing everyone, trying to provide encouragement and direction, but not only fellow Carmelite nuns that she's trying to keep up correspondence with, but also nobility and other members of the faithful, family members are looking for encouragement and direction. Uh, and that's because the Carmelite reform is part of a, a even larger explosion, if you will, of mental prayer in Spain. A gift of contemplation was poured out in that country in the 16th century. Teresa of Avila is at the heart of it. At this stage of the game, some of the early leaders have passed away. So John of Avila has already died. The apostle of Andalusia, he was the authority everybody was turning to. Uh, Peter of Alcantara, I, I think by this stage of the game, he too has died. And so Teresa now is in her full maturity. She is considered right now the authority after these two great giants have passed away. People are looking to her. And of course, some of the ideas, even in this present chapter, we're, we're in book four of the um, Interior Castle, and we're looking at chapter two. Some of the images we have here are themes that you'll see picked up by St. John of the Cross in his writings. In fact, at this stage of the game, 
some of his very first writings have already been produced. And you can kind of see the crossover between Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. This book, it's kind of the full maturity of her ideas, ideas that have been developing over the last 15 years in this work crystallize. Uh, With John of the Cross, you kind of see them taken even further, developed even further. So it makes this literature very powerful. And it would be different, like, you know, a modern author, she was given, you know, two months to go off by herself in seclusion to produce something like this. But she's writing it right in the middle of all the busy tasks, right? Being faithful to all the things that she is required to do as a, has a nun in terms of the, the daily office and the daily chores and all the daily things that go on in a monastery. But then with this added burden of administration for all these monasteries throughout Spain, and then as this spiritual authority who everybody wants to write and hear from. So all of this is going on all at once. And her ability to write is kind of very broken. And so we find little paragraphs like this in the interior castle that help us remember the circumstances under which she's writing. So what we have then, since she's not able to sit down all at once and write, but kind of writes in this interrupted way, what we have is a, a pouring out of the heart. What's most amazing about this pouring out of the heart is there is a coherent structure that emerges despite all the distractions that come up. There's a beautiful images are developed and brought in a certain direction and ideas build on each other. How did she keep this all in her mind? And I think the way she kept it all in her mind, the way she was able to come back to this was that she had an encounter with the Lord at the beginning of this work. We talked about this earlier. All of this wisdom that's flowing out right now flows out because of the encounter she has had with the Lord, an encounter that's renewed every day in her personal prayer. She's deeply rooted and being silent before the Lord and adoring his majesty. She's deeply rooted in completely giving herself over to him in the silence uh, that contemplative life makes possible and in the asceticism that contemplative life requires. In the spiritual, asceticism means spiritual practices and all these spiritual practices in the silence of her daily life, even in the midst of all these other activities, this wisdom she's able to coherently build on it chapter after chapter, book by book, because of something the Lord has given her. So this isn't merely the product of a very clever mind. It's a gift from God that she's letting flow out of herself. Can I read a section that comes right out of that first section of chapter two? It's a paragraph, what they would number, number one. (laughs) I just, I can't help it. I just love how she talks. She says, I think I said that spiritual consolations are occasionally connected with the passions. These feelings of devotion produce fits of sobbing. I have even heard that sometimes they cause a compression of the chest and uncontrollable exterior motions violent enough to cause bleeding at the nose and other painful effects. I can say nothing about this, never having experienced anything of the kind myself, but there appears some cause for comfort in it 
because as I said, all ends in the desire to please God and to enjoy his presence. If you can, Anthony, that is such a wonderful thing because she doesn't necessarily say that what the other, because she hasn't experienced it, that what those others experienced was necessarily out of the norm of this aspect of prayer. Am I summing that up properly? Yeah. In her last chapter, she made a distinction between kind of what you might call a sensible consolation or something that emerges from our own efforts, a spiritual feeling that we might have in prayer that is produced by the fruit of our own meditation. She distinguished that from what she's calling here a spiritual consolation. One is sensible because it emerges from our feelings and our feelings are connected with our bodies. And it emerges from our feelings very much because of our own human industry as it is applied to prayer. And she's going to distinguish this from what she wants to talk about in this chapter, spiritual consolation. What she's saying in this very first paragraph is even though there's this distinction between a a sensible gift in prayer and a spiritual consolation in prayer, even though this is, there's this distinction, a spiritual consolation can still have, she's heard, very physical effects and can also affect our emotions. And so there can be, with a spiritual consolation, something God produces. That's the big difference. Spiritual consolation is produced by God rather than my own meditation. Sometimes when God produces it, the body is involved. Sometimes there are very, very strong emotions. But she has not herself experienced this physical sensation, any pain or uncontrollable exterior motions of her body or interior feelings that kind of overwhelm her. She has not experienced this kind of consolation doing this to her, but she's heard others have. And it has to do with the connection between the soul and the body. When God first begins to operate in a new way in the soul, our souls are always connected to our bodies. The body sometimes has some kind of experience, and you know that it's a spiritual consolation, that it's not just something that you've worked up yourself because of the fruits that are produced. It's the fruits that let you know that this is something God has done. Otherwise, we can have very strong emotional experiences and even bodily experiences, but if they're not leading us to conversion and to, and to profound growth, if they're not enlarging our heart is what she concentrates on here, they're not a bad thing, you know, praise God for the gift received, but it's not the thing that she wants to write about here, this thing that God does in the soul. She calls this thing that God does this spiritual consolation. She's written about it in The Way of Perfection. She's written about it in her life. She calls it the prayer of quiet. When you talk about fruits, even in looking at the life of Teresa, as she's going on to that with a subsequent chapter or so, she talks about how this connection with God, you begin to see him in all things. And in that third paragraph, she almost sounds Franciscan or Benedictine in the fact that she sees God in the wonder of him in all of creation, even to the the wonder of a little ant, a tiny mm. ant. There's that experience of his omnipotence. Do you think that's fair to say that? 
Yeah, this is part of the gift of contemplative prayer. It makes you more vulnerable to God's word, uh, to the wisdom that's passed on to us in Holy Scriptures. It also makes you more vulnerable to God's word communicated to us through the beauty of his creation. That's why many contemplative communities prefer to have their monasteries, you know, out in the countryside. They want the silence. They want the beauty of nature around them. It helps them pray. And even the ones that are in the city, the ones that I I know of at any rate that are thriving, they're always places of beauty. Beauty, something about natural beauty disposes us or makes us vulnerable to the way God can work in our lives. And, And a soul that's open to contemplation can look at a tiny ant and see the wonder of God. St. John of the Cross, they would say, you know, where's Father John of the Cross? Where Where is he at now? And, oh, he's out in the fields again. He would lay down out in the fields and look at the little tiny wildflowers and ponder God's handiwork, and that would raise him into the most beautiful places of prayer. Something about the beauty of creation helps draw our hearts to the Lord. And that's the whole reason God created such a beautiful world. He wanted us to be able to find him in it. He wanted our hearts to be set on fire by the beauty that he fashioned all the wonderful things he's made. And so that's this whole effort of contemplative prayer. It doesn't remove you from this world or set you above creation. It kind of inserts you more deeply into it. The more we're set into the beauty of creation, the more we accept this gift that God has given us and see it as a love letter, it also grounds us more deeply in our humanity. So in Christian contemplation, we're not trying to surmount nature. We're not trying to escape creation. We actually find in creation a threshold, an opening that allows us to see God. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. 
We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I don't want to digress or take a trip down a, a different path, but I do think you opened a beautiful door there for us to kind of explore just a little. Whether it's in creation that we encounter God, don't we see it also in the, in the beauty of his order, which manifests itself in so many different ways? What I'm speaking about is the joy, for example, that a, a doctor of the church, Albert the Great, he would see in mathematics that mm-hmm. that the sciences exploded in a very real way because of the work of holy men and women who really began to see how God can work in the immensity of the universe in that created order. I mean, it, so for many men and women, it may not be running out in the field, but it could be in the exploration of that type of scientific order. Sure. Um, I, I, um, I think, though, for somebody like Albert the Great or other fathers of the church who were also scientists, I, there has been a, quite a connection in the church between theological minds and prayer and science. Blaise Pascal would be a more recent person who saw uh, the same thing. The, he advanced mathematics by watching a fly dance on the ceiling of his room while he was sick. He saw in that fly on the ceiling something worth wondering over. And so wonder is the very stuff of science. It's also the very stuff of prayer, and that's why there's connection between the two. The wonder that the natural order evokes, and the natural order can be the living things that God has made that spring up between the cracks of a sidewalk. The wonder can also be evoked by the mathematical order that we see in the world. And when we're able to discern and grasp that, something in discerning and grasping it, we don't discern and grasp it so that we can use it for something else merely. That tends to be the way mathematics is looked at now that it's kind of a tool for the advancement of industry. Well, it is a tool for the advancement of industry. The Lord himself said, go subdue the earth. That's part of it. But if we only look at it as a tool, as something that we use to master something else as a means to an end, and we don't let ourselves be caught by how beautiful it actually is, this mathematical order, this geometric order that we see, the balance of physical forces that are at work as we gaze upon the stars or look in the currents of the ocean. 
there are thousands and thousands of different elements all coming together all the time, all in relation one to the other that speak about the very relationality of the Holy Trinity itself and our relation to the Holy Trinity, the oneness and threeness and the threeness and one. This is a mystery that compels us to see relations in everything. And so somebody like Albert the Great would wonder over that and be and allow it to draw him into prayer. And so should we allow ourselves to wonder over the beauty of the things that he has made. You know, this is what's so wondrous about Teresa of Avila, because she goes to that pondering of creation, and but also she talks about the wonders inside of us and of the human heart. And she says, essentially in that fifth paragraph, she goes, I discover secrets within us, which often fill me with astonishment. How many more must there be unknown to me? Mm-hmm. And then she says, I say comparatively nothing proportion with all the secrets hidden within thee. Yet how great are thy mysteries that we are acquainted with. She's essentially saying, it's like that understanding what's going on inside of us. It's a mystery. It's, it's, mm. it, but it mystery, not in the Jessica Fletcher sense, I've got to figure this out, but more of the, the mystery of something that we can't possibly grasp. This mystery that she's talking about, this particular facet that she's trying to unfold for us right now is, again, this distinction in the kinds of prayer. There's a kind of prayer that is born of our own elements. She calls it here, the translator calls it sensible devotion. And she wants to distinguish this from the remarkable work of God that she calls spiritual consolation or the prayer of quiet. Sometimes when someone's teaching about the taxonomy of prayer, they're so caught up in trying to analyze and take things apart. They don't let themselves simply see the beauty of what God is doing. They're more caught up in making sure they've got the correct jargon applied in just the right way, and they lose the wonder of what these different degrees of prayer are open up about uh, how present God is in the soul. One of the wonderful things that Teresa of Avila unveils for us in this distinction between sensible devotion and divine or spiritual consolation is she talks about how this spiritual consolation takes us deeper into the center of the soul. This is part of her big imagery that evoked this whole work. When she began this work, she saw this beautiful crystal, and she noticed that the deeper you went into the crystal, the crystal was illuminated. And so the deeper you went into the crystal, the closer you drew to the light, the more beautiful this crystal castle would become. And she subtly returns to this idea here where we can go in the spiritual castle that God has made of our soul, our ability to draw close to his light. We can only go so far our own efforts and our own meditations. In order to go into the deeper places, places of even deeper intimacy, he needs to take the initiative and we need to humbly surrender to the initiative he desires to take. This spiritual consolation is the beginning of a more deeper encounter with him. It's a joy that nothing in this world can take away. 
because it's not a joy that comes from anything in this world. It's a joy that comes from God himself. In other kinds of prayer and meditation, the joy that we arrive at is a joy that we have by our own spiritual industry, our faithfulness to prayer, our ability to apply our imagination to a scripture passage or to images that the saints give us, or or even our ability to ponder uh, the handiwork of God in mathematics and geometry or in uh, the beauty of the mountains or force. All of this employs our own natural powers. The analogy she sees is that this is, uh, the source is distant or remote from us. We're a long way from the center. And so we have to build all these pipes through with meditation and pondering, strive to find those things that evoke wonder in us so that we can get this life-giving water that comes from this wonderful source that is the Lord. The water comes from the Lord. How we get it in the beginning, because we're so far away, is by our own efforts. But in this spiritual consolation, unlike the sensible devotion we were striving for in meditation and spiritual consolation, it's as if we've been brought closer to the source. We don't even fully realize what God is giving us when he's giving it to us. We've been brought to this more intimate place where he begins to overflow our soul with something extremely beautiful, but it's so delicate and subtle. It's refreshment, the refreshment it provides our hearts, so hidden that we don't realize what we've been given when we're in the midst of this prayer. So it's not the kind of gift that you get and go, okay, now I finally got to the spiritual consolation. You know, I've, I've achieved something. When this gift from God is overflowing our soul, we don't even realize that it's happened. According to John of the Cross, it can happen even in the night, completely unbeknownst to us. This wonderful, refreshing joy that comes from God, that nothing in the world can take from us. Our natural capacities aren't always aware of the beautiful treasures that have been showered upon them. And that we can enter into a place where something like this happens. This is part of the wonder that Teresa has over the very soul itself, that there are depths to us that are characterized not so much by our own activity and our own achievements. Instead, they are characterized by beautiful gifts that God freely chooses to give us for no other reason than for his own glory, that it delights his heart to love us so, that it delights him to give us such a joy. We've always referred to it as a gift. It's a total gift to be cherished. And she acknowledges in this particular chapter that we long for that type of a gift. Is that wrong, Anthony, to truly desire to have that type of touching of God? that experience of God? I think that it's not wrong to desire friendship with God and to desire the things that he wants to give us. I'm saying this, there is a problem where we try to seize and grasp after spiritual experience. And so as we're going through this, I think that's a very dangerous thing. In fact, 
towards the end of this. She talks about that a little bit more. But the desire for the Lord himself, the desire to possess the Lord, there is nothing wrong with that. That would be a normal part of friendship. When you have a very good friend, you desire the possession of the friend, and that is realized in the most perfect way in marriage. But it's also true in any of our spiritual friendships. In any of our spiritual friendships, when we are separated from somebody that we love, we desire in their absence that we see them again. And when we do, it brings delight. There's genuine joy in our soul because we see somebody that we love, that we long to talk for. By possession of my friend, I mean that I have somebody who's physically present to me that I can exchange ideas with and share my heart with and they with me. And we have this mutual possession that every good friendship has some element of that. Again, in marriage, it's brought to its highest expression. Its most beautiful realization is in marriage or ought to be. And that's why when husband and wife are away from each other, they long for one another. Well, that same longing to be with the beloved, the same longing to be with my friend, to see my friend again, that longing for a homecoming, there's nothing wrong with that. We were made to be home. We were made to be in communion with our friends. We were not made to be separated from them. It's pain. And yet to live, sometimes we're sent away from our friends and sometimes they're close to us. Well, prayer is a little bit, has the same movements in it. And this is part of the wonder. There are times where the Lord draws us close to himself and is able to give us this joy. And when he draws us close to himself and we possess him, joy is love that possesses what it desires. And that's the spiritual joy. It's not so much a feeling, although a lot of feelings can come. It's not an enlightenment, although Many, many powerful insights can flow into the soul. This joy, this spiritual consolation, is a beginning of a new kind of possession of the Lord in our soul. And it quiets us. That's why she calls it prayer of quiet. It quiets us. It draws us away from all the anxious activities of our life because we're caught up by something more beautiful. It's okay to desire this. But we desire it as a a gift that God freely gives when he wants to give it in the way that he wants to give it. We don't try to seize it or grasp it or yank it from his hands. That very effort would violate the whole nature of such an exquisite gift given in prayer. The proper way to pursue this gift, says Teresa of Avila, is by humility. We'll continue our conversation on this particular chapter of St. Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle in our next episode. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. There, too, you'll find an audio version of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, the masterwork in which this series has been based. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.